Let's go back to 1 John chapter 1 and just use it to remind us where we were before our break. 1 John, his first epistle, chapter 1. I explained to you by looking at 1 John 2, 1 John 4, and 2 John that there were antichrists, heretics that had gone out from the churches established by the apostles teaching false doctrines about the identity of the person of Jesus Christ. They denied that Jesus was equal to Christ. They, some held that Christ or the divine part of him only came to him at his baptism and left him at his crucifixion. Some didn't believe that he was truly the son of God. Some didn't believe that he was God. Some didn't believe that he came with a real, material, physical body. And so there were these issues assaulting the church that John goes after. In chapter 2, his question is, the question of the test question, is Jesus the Christ? Then in chapter, in Second John, the question is, did Jesus Christ come in the flesh? And when you look at those questions and what John says around them, they bring out four critical issues that I just listed to you. And John shows us what kind of an apostle he was. He was a defender of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his full deity, of his Messiahship, of his sonship, and of his real material body. Because he says these things in one sentence to open the first epistle, crushing those liars and those antichrists that were arguing against the true doctrine of Christ. Remember what I briefly explained as I read it to you. That which was from the beginning. Notice this brother, this apostle. He doesn't start off by saying, John, to the Gentiles scattered abroad, of whom I have fond recollection every time I think of you, I pray for you often, and am encouraged by the fellowship that we have had in the gospel from the first day until now. And just in case, you're wondering if John was as much of a man as Paul. I mean a gospel man. John did not start that way. That, the thing, the person, of which I am alive for, that, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And amen. What an opening sentence. If you will subscribe to this statement of faith, John says that I'm declaring to you, then you can have fellowship with us. Otherwise, you're out of fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. If you go through these three verses, one sentence, you will find all four critical issues answered in one sentence. Did He have a material body? We handled Him. We saw Him. We looked upon Him. Is He the Son of God? Is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Is Jesus the Christ? His Son, Jesus Christ, joining the two terms together. And what is He in His divine nature? A Son or an independent eternal life that was with the Father? Amen. The Word of life. The same as the Word of God in John chapter 1. I hope that this one sentence of 1 John will become more meaningful to you as it introduces you to the epistle of John to see John defending the person and the identity of Jesus Christ so carefully. Thus, we are going to defend the person and identity 
of Jesus Christ. Look, that is pure doctrine. That is pure apologetics. He is defending the truth. And if you don't believe what he declared there, he is going to say in this epistle that you're a liar, you're an antichrist, you're not really of us, and you don't know the Father, you don't have the Father, you don't have eternal life, and you don't have the Son. He's going to say those things. And he says, if anyone comes along bringing not this doctrine with them, don't invite him into your house. Don't have fellowship with anyone that doesn't believe this doctrine. Do not bid them Godspeed. That means to say, God bless you. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. You cannot, should not, must not say anything like that to anyone that does not believe the full definition, identity of Jesus Christ that is given right here. That is Second John. If you read it last night, you read that the elect lady was not to invite such false teachers or those holding false doctrine into her house, nor to bid them Godspeed. We don't have a blessing for them. Okay. Who? John. Whom? Gentiles of Asia. Why? To counteract false ideas about Jesus Christ. What? The method. John recorded things the other gospel writers didn't give us. Like Mark, he did not record details of our Lord's birth to Joseph and Mary. Matthew, we assume, wrote to Jews. Why do we assume that? Because he took the genealogy of Jesus Christ back to David and to Abraham. Doesn't that tell you enough right there? In Matthew chapter 1, Luke. Who did he write to? Greeks and Gentiles. Why? Because the object of his, uh, his gospel and the book of Acts is to Theophilus, a Greek. He traced Jesus by his genealogy in Luke chapter 3, not back to David, not back to Abraham, but all the way back to our common father, Adam. Now, okay, so Matthew traces Jesus back to Abraham. Luke traces Jesus back to Adam. Where does John trace him? To God. That he's God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, how does that compare to, and his father was Adam, and his father was Abraham? It's a whole higher level about the Lord Jesus Christ in pointing out his deity, that Jesus is God. The method. What else did John do that was different than the other gospel writers? He has whole, he has six whole chapters about the hours right in front of the crucifixion. They are John chapters 12 through 17. That's before the Garden of Gethsemane in 18. Six chapters of the final hours of the Lord Jesus Christ right before his crucifixion. When you're looking at the 21 chapters of John and you want to break it down in some way, which I haven't really done yet, I'm just telling you that there are six from 12 to 17 that are right in front of the crucifixion. Then there's 18 through 21, which are four about his arrest, his trial, and much more details of what he did after his resurrection from the dead. You can find out a whole lot more about the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John than you can in the other Gospels. They hardly mention the Holy Spirit. But in John chapters 14 through 16, you have three chapters about the Comforter that the Father would send in the name of Christ. Rather than emphasizing the history of Christ, Jesus shows us His mystery as God in the flesh. Rather than just recounting He was born here, this happened, he did this, this miracle. I am not making fun of the other Gospels. I am wanting to lift up the Gospel of John and show its beauty and its place relative to the others. There were three of the others so that we can get a perspective on events in the life of Jesus from three different observers. But John tells us things that are different about Jesus Christ. He reveals things to us about his relationship to the Father over 
and over and over again. And we're going to want those things because His relationship to the Father is our relationship to the Father because if we're in Him, then we're in the Father. If we've seen Him, we've seen the Father. The unity between God, His Son, and us is beautiful in John. It's not even mentioned in the other ones. Above and beyond the logic of Paul, and Paul's epistles are very logical, John is lofty in the spiritual truth of Christ. You know, when we read through Hebrews, and you know how much I love Hebrews. When we read through Hebrews, the Apostle Paul is just methodically, logically showing that Jesus is superior to anything of the Old Testament. But when we read John, it is lofty ideas of Jesus as God in the flesh, on earth, in union with the Father, and we in turn with Him, His prayers, His words, the things He tells us are not mentioned in the other Gospels. As the Father hath life in Himself, so hath He given to the Son to have life in Himself, and hath given Him authority to execute judgment also. Those things aren't said in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those things are said in John. And then He goes on to tell us about how we're born again. That they that hear the voice of the Son of God shall live. It's, it's a wonderful gospel. And we're very thankful for it. He wrote more about, he wrote more than the others about Jesus Christ after his resurrection, the strong evidence of faith, the necessity of regeneration, the doctrine of our union with Christ, the sending forth of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's purpose. John wrote those things for us. Many consider it the most difficult book of the New Testament to interpret. If you read commentaries in the New Testament, they're going to say John's the most difficult. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not difficult because it's a narrative of he went here and he did this and he went here and he did that. But in John, there are some pretty deep statements about his identity with the Father and his union with the Father because it's at another level of his deity rather than his earthly mission of miracles. And the few miracles that are in the Gospel of John are all wrapped up, wrapped around chapters like John chapter 6. Except ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, ye have no eternal life in you. Now how simple is that? Did Matthew, Mark, and Luke ever say anything quite like that? No, not even close. Matthew and Mark and Luke said things like, and the next day they went to this village and he healed such and such there. He did all these things. We want all the Gospels. Except ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, ye have no life in you. Is that easy to interpret? What have Roman Catholics done with it? 1.2 billion of them. You've got to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus Christ by taking their little consecrated host. So these are the things we're going to learn. We've been through John chapter 6 before. We'll go through it again when we get there. Because of John's purpose, what is John's purpose again, his overall purpose? For believers to know that they have eternal life and that they might believe on Jesus, the Son of God, even more for greater assurance that they have eternal life. Because he puts so much emphasis on faith and eternal life, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't talk about whosoever believeth on him. He that believeth on him hath everlasting life. As the serpent was lifted up in the Moses, up, up, up in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't say things like that. John does. Because John is trying to encourage believers in Jesus Christ that they have eternal life. And because of that, because of that, Arminians love to go into the Gospel of John. They don't like Matthew. You know what Matthew says? Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. They don't like, that's not a good soundbite. That is just not good that the people that go to heaven are the people that do the will of God on earth. That is not a good soundbite. So they go to John 3.16. Quote it out of context. They don't know what it means. They can't defend its words. They don't know how many times in different ways that John uses the word world in just his one gospel. And so it turns into a book of soundbites, and they only know a couple of them, and I shared one with you earlier. Many see John as the most beautiful, profound, and personal book of the New Testament. It's, it's in John 12 that Greeks came to the apostles and said, Sir, 
we would see Jesus. And those apostles went and told the Lord, we've got some men here, they're Greeks. They've come and they don't want to meet us. They want to meet you. It's going to be very personal. John's going to be lying on his bosom. Do you know what, do you know what transpires between John 1 and John 4? John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. John 4. Give me to drink. To a Samaritan woman. What in the world transpired? Verse 14. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. And what grace and truth He laid on the woman of Sychar in John chapter 4. And He's laying on us. God visited this planet and declared Himself through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is the Son of God, with a real material body, who suffered death for us, and rose from the dead in that body, and is seated in that body, glorified at the right hand of God. This is our Savior. This is what the Gospel of John is about. And we're going to embrace Him as we study it about Him. Lord, help us to that end. It's comparable to Genesis. In the beginning... God created. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. Beautiful. Compared to Hebrews, I already did it this morning. Hebrews starts out, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. You know, I love Hebrews 1. But John 1 isn't too bad, is it? I've already quoted it. Thank you, Lord. Nowhere is the God-man seen in a more majestic and noble way than in the Gospel of John of the four Gospels. Thank you, Heavenly Father. The introduction of John is exceptional. The first 18 verses of John chapter 1 are exceptional words. Profound axioms about God and His relationship to this world and to men and what He has done to save some men to be His children and how they were saved. Which were born not of blood. It has nothing to do with race, nor of the will of the flesh. It has nothing to do with your will, nor of the will of man. It has nothing to do with the will of anyone else but of God. We can't get past verse 13 of chapter 1, but I'll tell you, John 3.16, lovers sure can. They just want to go to John 3.16. Just overlook John 1.13. Which were born. Do you want to be born again? You can't do it yourself. You can't cooperate with it. It's entirely out of your control. Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John's Gospel has many more references to faith and eternal life than the others. Thus the Arminians use it. The other Gospels have no mention of being born again or passing into life. Do you realize that? Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't talk about it. You would think, since John 3.16 is the Gospel in a nutshell, that every book in the New Testament will be full of it. They use eternal or everlasting life only six times in three Gospels, four by questions of one man, what must I do to have everlasting life? So there's only two left. And, and they're totally different as they are. John does it 13 times in one gospel. Just goes on and on. Matthew presents Jesus as the seed of Abraham and David. And John presents him as God in the flesh and the Son of God. It's wonderful. The other gospels have many small events. John has these big pictures. Each chapter is like a new big picture. And you might have a miracle stuck in the middle of it and everything wrapped around it and what lessons he's going to draw from that miracle. Like John 6. John 6 is a long chapter. It's got 70 plus verses in it. But in John 6, the miracle is the feeding of the 5,000. But Jesus, John just uses that feeding of the 5,000 to take off with these words. From Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am bread that came down from heaven. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they're all dead. Any man that eats me is going to live forever. You know, just, it's, 
It's beautiful. Amen. A whole chapter is spread out, 70 verses, and by the time Jesus gets done with this crowd that's looking for a free lunch, you know, Americans are still looking for the free lunch, aren't they? And unfortunately, 55% of them are getting the free one because the other 45% are earning it for them. But anyway, that wasn't necessary. They were looking for a free lunch in John chapter 6, and they were going to come and make Jesus king by force so they could get free lunches all the time. And by the time he got done, who was left? The apostles. And he turned to them and said, Will you go away also? And this is all... See, John is big, broad strokes. Because we have that miracle there in the middle of John chapter 6, but around it is this great lesson. How about John 9? The man born blind. A whole chapter. A whole chapter to give us a whole lot of details about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, it would have been, and he healed the blind. Or there was blind Bartimaeus. And in a few verses, it's over. But in John 9, we have this long story about the man born blind, how Jesus goes and finds him again, and and asks him, do you believe on the Son of God? Well, who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? It's he that's speaking to you. Wow. John 9. I mean, it's a great... Can we get excited about the Word of God? Memorize it, read it, embrace it, love it. Uh, Take it into ourselves. Let it consume us. Let us see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. You know, we could go through a... I I sent it to you in the uh, preparatory email of looking at each chapter and seeing the neat things that are in each chapter and how it's different. There's usually one overriding event or doctrine in each chapter. And I hope that uh, you enjoy it as you study it. You know, Jesus taught the doctrine of election. John chapter 6. All the Father giveth me shall come to me. Verse 37. Verses 38 and 39. I didn't come down from heaven to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will that hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. That is the doctrine of election. That's as pure as election can be. God gave some to Jesus Christ to save, and he said, I will lose none of them. John chapter 6. John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. They will quote those verses for being in the hand of Jesus and being in the hand of the Father, but they don't ever notice the point that God gave us to Jesus to save. But election is taught through... Do you think John is going to differ from Ephesians chapter 1 where we have been for the last few weeks? Not at all. John chapter 10 and verse 16. Adam, you've liked this over the last few years. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I will try to bring. Them also I will offer salvation to. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. John 17, 2, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. I'm giving you background right now. Does the Apostle John believe in the doctrine of election? Of course, of course, of course, on many different layers and levels of proof. But even from the book itself, he shows that he strongly believes in the doctrine of election. There's more election in John than there is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined. And don't tell me anything effeminate about John or his writings. He gets right to the point. He's powerful. He's strict. 1 John 2, 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's how John spoke. Does that sound like a Boanerges to you? It does indeed. Are we making him worse than he was? No. I just want you to see him for what the Bible says about him and what he says about himself. John used the word world very unlike any other writer in the New Testament. This beloved apostle, I didn't say apostle of love. I said beloved apostle. Do you know the difference? He's the beloved apostle because Jesus loved him. He used the word world in the Gospel of John 59 times. If we add in the 18 times in his epistles, 
We have 77 uses, and the other three writers can only come up with 32, and they're used very differently than John uses that word world. People love to quote John 3.16 and think that the word world means every single human being without exception that has ever been conceived from Cain and Abel to the end of the world. Where in the world do they get that idea? I wish they would sit down with a concordance and look up the 77 uses of the word world and find the wide latitude that the Apostle John uses with that word. We're going to have to rightly divide the word of truth about the world. And we will. We have before. We'll do it again. John has two of our one-word arguments, both of them chosen by Jesus Christ. John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. John 10, 35, if God called them gods unto whom the word of God came, um, why can't I call myself the son of God since I'm bringing you the word of God? John 10, 34 through 36, powerful reasoning. They wanted, to, they wanted to stone him because he was claiming to be the Son of God. And he says, in this particular line of reasoning, he said, what's so unusual about that? Your own Bibles say that God calls civil rulers gods. And they are just the ones that have been taught the Word of God. I'm teaching the Word of God. Why can't I call myself the Son of God? Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We, we love the way you argued and and defended the truth about yourself to those unbelieving Jews. We're thankful that some of them were saved by your grace and that you have saved us by your grace. The timing doesn't matter very much. It was written relatively later. It wasn't written after Revelation because Revelation closes up John's writings according to his own statement. And where it was written, it doesn't really matter. It was probably written in Asia Minor, but it doesn't matter because it doesn't change a single thing. Let me deal with a few corruptions. Look at John 1.1. John 1.1. The purpose right now is for you to appreciate the King James Bible and that as we go through the Gospel of John, we are going to trust it completely, explicitly, implicitly, entirely, only as to be the words of God. We don't care what other people have said, do say, will say. We don't care how many of them have said anything against it. We trust the King James Bible as having the fruit, our faith in that fruit, the facts and the proof by the fools that want to oppose it because it calls them fools for opposing it. The words of God. John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Now I'm going to read some verses to you, and I'm going to read them the way that they're put in modern translations of the Bible. Do you have a problem with that reading? Do you have a strong problem with that reading? Do you know what translation it's found in? It's the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. They'll allow that. And the Word was a God. They cannot have the Word being God. Was the Word God? John 1.1 says He was. And the Word was God. Verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten God, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Do you have a problem with that reading? Does anybody here believe in a begotten God? Never. Never. Our God wasn't begotten. The Word wasn't a begotten God. What Bible translations have that? The New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses and the New American Standard Bible of Bob Jones University. When I was going there, that was the version of choice in the Bible student classes for the preacher boys. And now it's the English Standard Version. They can't settle on a standard, even though they call it the New American Standard, the English Standard, but it's not a standard at all because they keep changing it. I remember writing the smartest man they had on campus in the first few years that I was a pastor, Dr. Stuart Custer. You know who I was about to say just by connection. Uh, Dr. Stuart Custer pointing out this verse and what, how in the world could he stand in front of preacher boys and present this text 
that is creating, a, the Word is a begotten God, and the deity of Jesus Christ is a begotten deity, and he's holding the doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and he said, you know, your, ze- your zeal has taken you a little too far in assuming that there was any doctrinal intention in the use of those words. I still have it somewhere in a file called Bob Jones University. Let me read it to you again. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten God, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. So they end up with Jesus being a begotten deity. Brother, we believe that Jesus in His divine nature, His God nature, was God. Jehovah. Second to none. The Lord God of heaven and earth. Creator of all things. We don't make Him a lesser God an A-God, or a begotten God. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God because in His human nature He was begotten by God, not in His divine nature. All the church... Okay, let me ask you this so I can calm down. Those antichrists and those liars that went out from the apostles and corrupted the doctrine and identity of Jesus Christ, did they win? Be very careful how you answer me. Depends on how we measure winning. Do they have all the numbers on their side? Absolutely. The Roman Catholic Church and all the churches that come from Rome, including the Baptists that accept Presbyterian confessions of faith, like the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, like the 1742 Philadelphia Confession of Faith, they all affirm that Jesus Christ in his divine nature was begotten and generated by the Father. In his divine nature. Jesus Christ was a human nature. That means a body and a spirit. But he had a divine nature because he was the fullness of the Godhead in a body. God-man. Fully God. Fully man. They are all confused and they are confused by the efforts of antichrist liars who came along as early as John to confuse the identity of Jesus Christ that this divine nature was just an emanation of the supreme God so that he was a God, he was a begotten God, he was generated by eternal generation. These are their words. The mysterious process of eternal generation gave us the deity of the word of God. It is When it's taken to its logical conclusion, it's a begotten God, it's a God, and that is united with the human nature, then we have something very different. We don't have the eternal life, we have a begotten life. We don't have a word of God that was in the beginning, we have a word of God that was begotten. And their Bibles say so. That New American Bible, New American Standard Bible, in John 1.18 says, begotten God. Therefore, we, as a church, and there are a few of us left in the world, believe that Jesus, in his divine nature, is unbegotten God Jehovah. Equal to the Father in every respect. And we've always held that. And of course, we're going to have to deal with that, especially in the first chapter as we get into it. But right now, I want to show you some of the corruptions. Are we going to trust John 1.18? Are we going to trust it? That it says a begotten son, not a begotten God. Boy, if I used the New American Standard Bible, I would be sick and angry that my Bible copies the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses in that verse. Wouldn't that... Why doesn't it get other people upset? Because they don't care. You know, as Stuart Custer would say, it doesn't make any doctrinal difference. I beg to differ on that. My Lord Jesus Christ is not a begotten God in any sense of the word. He's only a begotten Son by the combination of a human nature and body with God the Word that was unbegotten in any sense together in the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. God was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. To be begotten of the Father took God generating the human nature and body of Jesus Christ in the womb of Mary, a virgin, combining it with the Word of God, who's unbegotten, 
putting them together. And then we, we look at this resulting thing. And do you know what Luke says about him in Luke one thirty five? That resulting thing shall be called the Son of God. That is the Son of God. But we don't need Luke. We have John in verse 14. The Word was made flesh. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He lived. He needed a house. He needed a bed. He needed a drinking faucet. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Verse 18 says, No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, Word, flesh, Son, but the only begotten Son has declared Him. We learn about God and we see the glory of God in the face of this. The Word made flesh, united. The flesh is real flesh. It's not a figment of the imagination. It's not a phantom. It is very real material flesh. Demiurge and all the rest of that junk of the Gnostics can go to hell. Real flesh was raised from the dead and sits at God's right hand. It was united with the Word of God. Bang! And so the first statement, the first principle of the mystery of godliness is God was manifest in the flesh. God manifest in the flesh. Manifest is to make something visible and obvious. Not until God that cannot be seen. He is called the invisible God in the Bible. Joined that human nature. Then we had something manifest. We could see. It was declared. We could look upon Him. We could hear Him. We, we ate with Him. We, le- we, we laid on His bosom at supper. I hadn't been in the ministry one year. I hadn't been in the ministry one year until I got a letter out of nowhere by a primitive Baptist elder that wanted to call us a heretic without ever asking me or anything because of our doctrine of the sonship of Jesus Christ. So I promptly preached on the sonship of Jesus Christ and then promptly preached on why we are not primitive Baptists. Um, it It has caused division everywhere. Most people don't even know about it. But if you go read the Confessions of Faith, the Nicene Creed, you know, that we could say as a Catholic confession, though there wasn't a formal Catholic church in 325, there was, you know, Caesar ruling over it. And all those state churches got together and they said, God of God, very God of very God, light of light. No, 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 I don't, I don't understand any language like God of God. No, no. Jesus Christ is not God of God. Jesus Christ is God. God. Period. Jehovah. Our Bible is so wonderful in our defense. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. A son would be given and his name would be called the mighty God. What comes next? The everlasting Father. Jesus in his divine nature is the Father. (laughs) Those poor people. But do you know what? They outnumber us 99.99%. That's what I meant by who won. But they didn't win. They have 99.99%, but we still have the truth. Do you know why? Because of John. Blessed by God to pen the doctrine that we hold. Do you know those verses that I'm using? Some of you that have been around for a long time, you've heard John 1.1 and John 1.14 so many times. It's just routine to you. But you know what? That routine from John has saved us from so much false doctrine about His Son, Jesus Christ. Okay. We're going to trust the King James Bible, but I'm not done. Verse 27. You all there? He it is who coming after me is, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. Let me read it to you again. All Greek and English versions of the New Testament. Not New World. Not just New American Standard. The rest of these examples I'm going to give you, I was selective. All Greek, all English versions read this way. He it is who coming after me, whose shoe latchet I am not worthy to unloose. What's missing? 
is preferred before me. Does that take away honor and glory from the Lord Jesus Christ? John 3.13 I have only made a sampling. I have some decent resource materials that you're welcome to borrow at any time. They're in the library. I've made sure they're all available. And you know you can go online and just punch up the Gospel of John and have all the versions that are out there compared. It is quite a source of entertainment. John 3.13 And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man. What's missing? Which is in heaven. Which is in heaven. Is, is in heaven present tense? And he's on earth? What is that proof of? He's omnipresent God. It's taken away. All Greek and English translations. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man. 442. These are the men of the, these are the Samaritans of the city of Sychar. And said unto the woman, this is the woman that met Jesus at the well, and said unto the woman, Now we believe. Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What's missing? The Christ. Was that kind of important to John in first John chapter two? Who is he that believeth that Jesus is the Christ? These people believe that Jesus was the Christ, but it's taken away from them. Many corruptions, thousands of them, whole verses, chunks of verses, word changes, word omissions throughout the Bible. But we're just looking at the Gospel of John right now. John 5, 4. Are you all there? I will begin reading all Greek and English versions right now at this moment. I'm done. There is no John 5, 4. Now look at John 5, 3, the last part of it. Let's read John 5, 3. In these, that is in the porches of the pool of Bethesda, lay a great multitude of impotent folk of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. Now if you've taken out verse 4, would you want the last clause of verse 3 there? Waiting for the moving of the water. Is that children swimming and splashing? So it's gone too. So when we come to John 5, we have Jesus finding a lame man 38 years or some long, 38 years, verse 5, and he's there beside the pool and he wants to get in the water. And I've asked this for many decades. Well, I'm not that, a few decades. Why does a lame man want to get in the pool? What's going to happen to him? He's going to drown. Why does he want to get in the pool? Because verse 4 is taken away. Which version are we going to rely on? Critical commentaries? 400 years. About the Lord Jesus Christ. 639. John 639. And this is he which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. This is he which hath sent me. The Father's will gone. John 6.47 Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth hath everlasting life. I'm just giving you a sample. I am just giving you a sample. Trust Trust me and believe me. I am giving you a minority sample. John 6.69 John 6.69 This is Peter's wonderful declaration at the end of this chapter. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Holy One of God. Does that get you irritated? Having presented to you First John showing you the enemies of the identity of Jesus Christ earlier today, does that upset you? To have that taken away by Peter's declaration. John 6 and verse 69 in all Greek and English versions reads, 
And we believe and are sure that thou art the Holy One of God. The Christ and the Son are gone. John 8. Do all of you know the story of the first 11 verses? The woman taken in adultery. All Greek and English versions, either omit it, bracket it once, or double bracket it, meaning that if there's brackets around it, they are telling you it does not have the authority that the rest of Scripture has. They take off John 7 and verse 53, the last verse of John John chapter 7, and they take away the first 11 verses of John 8. When we get to John chapter 8, do you want me to preach to you the event of the woman taken in adultery? Wow. Okay. There's a couple of us. We can meet in a phone booth. Do you want me to trust every word of this passage? Yes, we are going to. Our brethren have for 2,000 years. John 8, 59. I remember as a boy asking my father about this event. In fact, he was asking me about this verse. We were talking about it at break time today. John eight fifty nine. Jesus has just said, Before Abraham was, I am, in verse 58. Verse 59, which my dad likes to use with Jehovah's Witnesses. 58 and 59. Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I'm finished. Are you finished? No? Is there more? John 8, 59. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Isn't that enough? No. Don't we love the last part of that verse? Going through the midst of them and so passed by. He walked right through the midst of those enemies that wanted to stone him to death. Gone. What version are we going to rely on? Have there been enemies out there that want to corrupt the doctrine and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? My Lord Jesus Christ even while he was in a state of humiliation on earth, passed right through the midst of a mob intent on stoning him, on stoning him, and so he passed by. John 9, 4. We must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. John 9, 4. All Greek, all English, we. We know that the works that Jesus had to do were far different from the works the apostles did. That's for sure. John 9.35 Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe in the Son of Man? John 10, verse 26 But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. I'm finished. John 10.26 but, but ye believe not because you're not of my sheep, as I said unto you, meaning that this passage right here is confirming election that he had taught elsewhere as well. Such as, the good shepherd layeth down his life for the sheep. John thirteen eighteen. I want to encourage you in the words of your King James Bibles is what I'm doing. And letting you know where we're going to be. We're going to trust Every word. John 13 and verse 18. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth my bread hath lifted up his heel against me. You say, well, that's just a minor little difference. Oh, no, it is not. John 16, 16. A little while and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while and ye shall see me. I'm done. Are you done? Because I go to the Father. 1 John 5, 7. Okay, I'm done. What does it say in a King James Bible? There are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. You think it's relatively important? I sent you a link in the Tuesday update if you want to just flip down through it. Mark Marunick encouraged me to send it by talking about it with me last Sunday. A man who's done some work on some of these 
He hasn't done a work on all these. He has about two in the Gospel of John. But from 1 John 5, 7, you can see all the evidence that there is for the text to read exactly as it does. He has thoroughly compiled evidence as to why 1 John 5, 7 belongs in the King James Bible and was put there by the Apostle John. Now, do you know what everybody says how it got there? Erasmus made a bet that if anybody could find any single manuscript that had it in it, he would stick it in the Bible. So they found a Latin Vulgate manuscript in Latin, and he put it in the Bible. And so they all make fun of us for believing 1 John 5, 7, because they say it's, it's there based on a wager. Click on the link that I sent you. Click on the link that I sent you. And if, you, if you're in a hurry, just look at the links that he has lined up to prove the point and the information that he has, that that text can be fully vindicated from the earliest days of the apostles and the early church. Because it's written in their commentaries. You don't need to have manuscripts. When the whole church believes that 1 John 5, 7 is part of the scriptures, and all the commentaries are referring to it as scripture, if there doesn't happen to be a manuscript that has it in it, so what? The preponderance of evidence proves that 1 John 5, 7 was a long time before the Latin Vulgate and before Erasmus decided to stick it in. But that's, that's, a, pretty, that's, a, that's a precious verse and part of John's arsenal against the heretics of his day. Look at John 1.12. I'm jumping to a new category of corruption, and we'll hurry up and finish this. This was just some background information to get you excited about the Gospel of John. It is going to tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ in a glorious way. Unlike the other Gospels, He is God in the flesh. That is what makes Him the only begotten Son of God. We are going to be found in union with Him like He is in union with God. It's a glorious Gospel. And I want to lift it up, but I want you to understand that going into it, we are going to trust our King James Bibles. I'm never going to say to you, this version says this, this commentator says that. I'm just going to use the words that we have on the page in front of us. John 1.12, we're talking about how men have corrupted the Bible. Not in changing the text, but in how they use it. Have you ever heard, and for those of you with an Arminian background, have you ever heard this verse? John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Ever heard that verse? Yes, you've heard that verse many times. You were required to memorize that verse. It might have been your favorite verse. It may have been the verse you heard more times than any other verse. But why didn't they finish the sentence? Why didn't they finish the sentence? John 1.12 is not a full sentence. How are we born again? which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God regenerates us without the cooperation of our will, without the cooperation of anyone else's will. No godparent, no godmother, no pastor, no preacher, no evangelist, no soul winner, no organist, no social worker, no AA consultant, counselor, no one. God regenerates us. John 5.24. They use John 5.24 like they use John 1.12. They think that if you hear the gospel and you believe it, then you're passed from death unto life because of that condition that you have fulfilled. John 5.24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me shall get everlasting life, hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. Is passed is a perfect present verb tense meaning the action was completed in the past and it's still true in the present. Is passed means that you were passed from death unto life before you heard and before you believed because heard and believed are present tense, but is past is not present tense. It is perfect tense, meaning it's already a completed action by the present. This verse is so wonderful. John 5, 24. There's no verse like this in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. This verse is so wonderful, it has three phases of salvation in it. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me 
path everlasting life. We're already in possession of it and shall not come into condemnation in the great day of judgment. We will be judged righteous by virtue of being in the book of life of Jesus Christ. And we have already been passed. We're already in possession. We shall not come into condemnation. And we already have been passed by the verb tense is passed from death unto life. Just like, is anyone doubting that? Look at your look at First John. Look at First John just very quickly. This is this is necessary. We have had John abused to us so much by Arminians who do not understand verb tenses and don't want to understand them. All they want is a soundbite. First John five one. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. What comes first in English grammar? Is born of God comes first. Because is born is a perfect tense, passive voice, use of the verb to be born. And it comes before the present tense, believeth that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, I hope you're disagreeing with me. I want you to disagree with me right now. But I just told you the truth about 1 John 5.1. Let's compare how the Bible presents love of the brethren. 1 John 4.7 Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. Is that the same construction as 1 John 5.1? He that loveth, present tense, is born of God. Here, 1 John 5.1, whosoever believeth is born of God. Is it the same construction? Okay, now do you have to love the brethren in order to be born of God? Or do you love the brethren after you're born of God? And because you were born of God? Okay, then let's look at 3.14. And let John straighten it out for us. So that we know exactly what the order is. First John 3.14 We know that we have passed from death unto life. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. What can we know about a person that believes that Jesus is the Christ? We can know that He has passed from death unto life. How about 4.15? Oh, I wish they... First John 4.15 Whosoever shall confess... What tense is that verb, shall confess? Future. Whosoever shall confess in the future that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth. Is that past, present, or future? Dwelleth. Present. God is presently dwelling in a man that in the future would ever confess that Jesus is the Son of God. That's a little grammar lesson. John 17, 9. Gail, this is for you. I don't forget everything. John 17, 9. When I was first reading Calvinistic literature and Calvinistic books, I was often presented with John 17, 9. And for a while, I used John 17, 9 the way I had picked it up from Calvinistic literature. I pray for them. I pray not for the world. But for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Do you see the doctrine of election in John 17, 9? God has given some to the Lord Jesus Christ. He only prays for them, and He doesn't pray for the world. You that are using John three sixteen against me, He says here He doesn't pray for the world that God so loved because of the doctrine of election. We were in a van on the way to Easley to go see some slides over at Newell Eastland's house and. You said that verse is only talking about the apostles. And so we shouldn't be using it as a proof for election to eternal life. Just want you to know that about Gail. She's not going to like me anymore, but um, Charlie, please protect me. I, I rejoice in that, Gail. I don't forget it. I remember it. I want the truth about every verse. Let's help each other. Let's embrace the Word of God. John 17, 9 is not teaching about election of the elect to eternal life and the rejection of the rest of the world as reprobates. It's talking about God choosing His twelve out of that world. And if you go on, it'll become very obvious to you. Because He says in verse 8, For I have given unto them the words which Thou gavest me, and so forth and so on. You know where we come into this chapter? It's verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, that's the apostles, 
but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. And that is what we are doing today. We are using the word of the apostles to believe on Jesus Christ, and we are fulfilling part of his intercessory prayer that he made in John chapter 17. Brethren, it's 21 chapters. I will go as fast as I think that I should. Think Romans. It's going to take us a while. I hope, you know, if the Lord comes before I finish, that's good. If half of you die before I finish, that's bad. Or if I die before I finish, well, that's good too. Um, We'll just trust the Lord on all of that. I'm going to try to be positive. Right now it hasn't been all that positive because I'm showing the errors because I want you to understand the attacks against the Gospel of John and the Epistle of John, and I want you to understand that he was writing very carefully to deal with some very specific heresies. And I hope that you are going home with a new light on John the Epistle and John the Gospel. But I don't want it to be negative. I don't want to, be, I don't want to have to come in here every Sunday and say it doesn't mean what the Arminians say it. Oh, I want to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There are verses. Amen. They're not theirs. They've stolen them and corrupted them. Revelation 3.20 is ours. Jesus is standing at the door of this church and asking us if we will hear and let him in to have fellowship with us. He's not trying to get anyone saved in Revelation 3.20. We have to spend so much effort on doing what we once believed about verses that we miss the glory and the benefit and the food and nourishment for our souls of what the verses do mean. So I'm going to try, even though I have so much Arminianism still in my head, about some of these verses in John. But I want us to emphasize the positive more than the negative. Our goals, my goal, with you, for you, from the Spirit of God, is how many traits of higher ground will we solve or will we work on in this series? Follow with me. I'm just going to list them. I have gone through the traits on higher ground very carefully to see what ones we will be working on from preaching through the Gospel of John. Christ-centeredness. More of the Holy Spirit. What book in the Bible has more to say about the Holy Spirit than John? No one comes close. More prayer. John 17. Spiritually minded. Eternal perspective. I know that in the last day, my brother shall rise. Relationship emphasis, 14 through 17. These are chapters. Fruit of the Spirit, chapter 15. Soul winning, chapter 4 with the woman of Sychar. Place for revival, chapter 2. Driving out the money changers. Reverent worship, Jesus praying in chapter 17. Self-examination, Jesus confronting Peter in chapter 21. Forgiveness and mercy, Jesus forgiving Peter. Same chapter. Peace and unity, chapters 14 through 17. Doctrinal steadfastness, chapters 7 and 8. Love is the greatest, chapter 13. I am very excited. I am not smart enough to have taught you the traits of higher ground and then had in the back of my mind all the time that John would be the perfect complement to that. God knows. If you'd have asked me a few weeks ago, I'd have told you the next book is going to be Isaiah or Jeremiah. But it's John. And I was overwhelmed when I looked at the 25 traits of higher ground and how many of them we will be working on by going through the Gospel of John. A few suggestions. If you wish I proceeded faster, be patient, consider others, and thoroughly grasp what we cover. If you wish I proceeded slower, read, read the book, review it, and study for your comprehension. The more familiar you are with the Gospel of John, the greater the benefit and joy you're going to have from this study. Mm -hmm. If you could read a chapter a day, every three weeks you're going to cycle through the Gospel. Also read First and Second John like I gave you in the preparatory last evening, for they are his epistles and compatible with his gospel. As we recently learned, will you pray with me for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that we might learn more about God and his son, Jesus Christ, 
if Paul needed prayers, and Paul did write often for his churches to pray for him, your pastor needs those prayers much more. I will present to you the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we're going to rejoice in him and the things that we're going to learn from his gospel. This is why we preach the word. We want to delight in the knowledge that we acquire by God's spirit in his word. Mm -hmm. If you'll pray, if you'll prepare, we can all accomplish growing together in this knowledge. I just don't want to be a noise on Sundays. I don't want to sing a pleasant song. I want you to be rejoicing in the truth that's been conveyed to us by this fisherman of Galilee, so inspired that he wrote lofty, sublime, majestic descriptions of Jesus Christ, our salvation by him, and our unity with him. May Jesus Christ be praised.